let's talk about something that comes up again and again and again, actually, and particularly when I'm reading about Australians, is this word mateship. And so again, it's, it's you've, you've kind of mentioned Australians and, and memory and, and how we create memory. And this is a very interesting thing for me because it seems to be that this is part of the myth of Australians and a, a young country in their history. They're young men willing to face adversity, standing side by side with their mates and looking out for their mates. And they talk about that's why Australian survival rates were so so good, was down to mateship. Is this true or is this myth? Well, one of the first things is the survival rate. Mm. The survival rate for the British and the Australians and the very small number of Americans, and the Americans are such a small number, statistically they don't quite even figure. Mm. You know, 700 mm. out of 60,000, it's only a tiny number. But the death rate for the British, the Australians, and the Americans is almost identical, mm. just, just over 20%. Less than half a percent variation. Right. Overall, yeah, yeah. the Dutch survive far better than any of those. Okay. 16%. Considerable difference. What, what has happened? <clears throat> Australia being a, a young nation, we were developed as a nation in adversity. It's a, it's a tough country. Mm. Right? We had to develop in a fairly short period of time. The trauma and mateship, shall we speak, of the First World War is not very far behind. Yeah. And many of these men were the sons of the men who'd been away to the First World War. And they've got to f try and re-emulate emulate what their fathers did under the terrible condition of the First World War. Um, it's a bit of a myth, mm. this Australian mateship. Yeah, mateship, sure, they had that. But then so did the British and so did the Dutch. Don't mm. play down the other nationalities and say we were far better than them. Yes, because yeah, everyone had to have a mate. Welcome back to the Death Railway Revisited podcast. I'm Nick Fordham, and inspired by the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, I'm on a journey to discover what actually happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago. Why, at a conservative estimate, approximately 100,000 people died, maybe more, constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma. And doing so, I've unearthed some surprising facts about what actually happened and what did not. There was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. Absolutely, absolutely. Along the way, I'm talking to experts to help me piece the story together. People like the man whose voice you just heard, Rod Beatty, creator of the Thailand-Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi. And to get a first-hand contemporary perspective, I'll also be reading extracts from diaries, letters and memoirs from prisoners of war who were there and whose lives were forever shaped by their experiences on the Death Railway. Here's Rod in the last episode discussing doctors in the camps. And there is not a single medical officer on this railway who doesn't go out of this whole story in, with the greatest, greatest regard from all of their men. No single medical officer. They just went out of here as heroes, universally. And yet not everyone in this story is a hero. There are also victims, chances, scoundrels, and quite often men simply trying to survive. Here's Australian Lieutenant Fred Stahl, whom we last met working as a medical orderly and reading the funeral services in his camp reflecting on his fellow POWs. In later years, I was often asked to comment on the behaviour of those who'd been a POW. In reply, I would give as my opinion, and it was a matter to which I'd given a great deal of thought after observing the actions and reactions of many men in those dark and difficult days. A belief that, in those circumstances, people could be divided into four main classifications. Gold, silver, brass and dross. 
In the first category, the gold, were those who would do anything they could at any time to assist their fellow men irrespective of cost or risk to themselves. In the second group, the silver, were those who would do anything they could to assist others, provided there was no great cost or risk to themselves. The third kind, the brass, were those who were interested only in their own welfare and would do all they could to advance it, short of causing injury or harm to others. Then there was the final branch, the dross, consisting of those who were not only interested in their own welfare, but they would do all they could to advance their own selfish course, regardless of any inconvenience, injury, lost or hurt that might befall others as a result of their actions. I would place 10% in the gold classification, 50% in the silver, 30% in brass, and 10 in the dross. For those of us fortunate enough never to have been tested in such extreme circumstances, can we be absolutely sure in which category we would fall when put to the test? Personally, if I'm honest, I doubt I'd ever have the moral and physical courage to be gold. I'd like to think I'd make silver, but can I be so sure? Can any of us? What wouldn't we do to survive? Survivors of the Holocaust often suffered from survivor's guilt. They survived when so many didn't, and some admitted that when introduced to a fellow survivor, the unspoken question was always, what did you do to survive? In Changi, Singapore, as we heard in the first episode, and in the camps in Thailand and Burma, thieving, trading and scrounging were commonplace. Pilfering from the Japanese was encouraged, from the locals tolerated, but from your comrades it was considered shameful. But that didn't stop it happening. Some men stole from their mates, from the sick, and even the dead. Anything that could be was scrounged, stolen or traded. Food, medicine, tobacco, boots, clothes, watches, rings, pens and books. Sometimes for reading, but more often to use the pages for cigarette papers. One padre resigned to the fact that the men were smoking the Bible, pleaded with them at least to read it first. Everything had its price, even rats, both cooked and raw. However, of all the stories I've read about on the Death Railway, none illustrates better both the desperation and also the ruthless resourcefulness of some of the men than Stanley Pavillard's account of a sick parade in his book The Bamboo Doctor. I had established it as a general practice that men queuing up to report sick with dysentery or diarrhoea should bring with them stools carried in large leaves or sections of hollow bamboo. I had no microscope, but I could form a fairly good opinion at a glance as to whether it was just plain diarrhoea or bacillary or amoebic dysentery. Now, I began to form a very definite suspicion that I was being shown the same specimens repeatedly by different men attending the same sick parade. This was soon confirmed. And in fact, I found that a brisk trade was going on some evil characters being prepared to sell amoebic or bacillary stools to men who did not want to work in return for a few cigarettes or a little money. Consequently, Pavillard required all future stool samples to be provided on the spot. When the new policy was announced, a few of the men on sick parade quietly slipped away. Of the rest... Ninety were admitted, Pavlard writes. Seventeen of them produced genuine dysenteric stools. Forty-six laid beautiful doughnuts. And the remainder changed their tune and swore blind that they were constipated. It was a dangerous game to be a thief or black marketeer on the railway. You ran the gauntlet between Japanese guards on one side and your fellow POWs on the other. 
If caught by the Japanese, you could expect a bashing. If caught by your fellow prisoners, you might also get a bashing and you might also be excluded from the group. The short-term pain of a bashing was nothing compared to the long-term agony of exclusion. As one soldier said, the humiliation is dreadful and also the feeling of loneliness. You're dependent on those other fellas. No matter what happens, you're part of a team. And if you're ostracised from that team, you're completely lost. A dreadful situation. You needed to be part of a group. At the very least, you needed a mucker, a pal, a mate. Reg Twig, a soldier in the Leicestershire Regiment and author of Survivor on the River Kwai, that pal was Jackie Weston, and they made a pact as they buried a comrade. With each shovel full of earth, we tipped onto the man who had yesterday been working alongside us. We made a vow, Jackie and me. We made a pact to stick together no matter what. And we'd beg, find or steal to do it. If we could help anybody else, that was to the good, but it wasn't likely. Helping yourself was paramount. Helping a mate was risky. Helping anybody else was a luxury nobody could afford. Sadly, Reg Twig and his mate Jackie were separated. When they were reunited, Reg hardly recognised Jackie, who looked like a walking skeleton. Neither man had any tobacco, and Reg went to find some. I scrounged some tobacco from somewhere and gave three ounces to Jackie, watching over him till he fell asleep on my bed. The man had survived Hellfire Pass. What can you give heroes like Jackie Weston? Three ounces of shag in a hard bamboo bed. I slept on the ground outside and when I woke the next morning, Jackie had gone. Reg and Jackie never saw each other again. Jackie's fate is something we will return to later in this episode. With over a hundred camps along the railway, there was a certain amount of luck about which one you ended up in. The experiences and relative hardship varied enormously from camp to camp. Andrew Snow from the Thai Burma Railway Centre and I continue our journey along the old railway line. So Andrew, we've just been talking about that there were very many different experiences along this 400 plus railway and different men had different experiences depending on where they were, and perhaps none are more extreme than where we are now at Songkarai. So tell us a little bit about this place. Songkarai was a Air Force camp. Um, Air Force came up to Thailand in April of 1943, and 7,000 men. This camp started off as a British camp, so about 1,600 Brits marched in here, um, in probably early May '43, by the time they got up here and unfortunately of those 1,600 British that came here only 400 returned to Singapore the rest either died here or in the hospital camp at Tambaya or the hospital camp at Kanchanaburi so the death toll here was quite horrific there were some Australian POWs that came here a bit later on, and a number of those died as well. But this is probably the camp of the highest death toll on the railway. And what was the cause of so many of those deaths? Well, unfortunately, Air Force uh, had to march up from Kanchanaburi to uh, this area in, uh, at uh, Songkarai, which was a roughly a 300-kilometre march... Uh, in uh, April and May of 1943, which are the hottest months of the year. A lot of the Air Force men were sick when they left Singapore and unfortunately they um, uh, picked up cholera on the way when they uh, went through the camps at Kumkoida. Uh The uh, cholera was uh, in that area and they brought it with them up here. So a number of men died um, from the uh, cholera outbreak here and others just died of other diseases, malaria, the dysenteries, etc. 
So the end result was a horrendous death toll. Yeah, it's quite sobering. Uh, it's quite a cheerful place here now. It's Songkram, so you can probably hear lots of music in the background and and it's it's back to life again. But uh, 80 years ago, this was quite simply one of the worst places you could possibly be on Earth. Lieutenant Harold Atchley, who'd so enjoyed the cultural life in Changi, was one of the unfortunate souls in Songkarai. He echoes Andrew's figures in his memoirs. When construction of the bridge at Songkarai was completed and the camp evacuated, barely 400 out of the original total of 1,600 were alive. And so sick, worn out and emaciated with those 400 men, that only 182 were still alive on their release at the end of the war in August 1945. As Andrew told me, cholera was the major killer in the camp. Actually, by chance, came away unscathed. I was one of the relatively few who were inoculated against cholera by the Japanese shortly before we left by train from Singapore early in 1943, he recalls. For many years I wondered why I should have been singled out, until Elka, his wife, suggested that it was probably because my name begins with A, and an army, when in doubt, would follow alphabetical order. I'm sure she's right. Ashley had been one of the unlucky members of 18th Division, who'd spent three months at sea, three weeks in Singapore, and over three years in captivity. He was one of the unfortunate members of F-Force, forced to march 300 kilometres in atrocious conditions just to get to their camp, the force with the worst fatality rates on the railway. And yet in the end, Atchley's luck held out, maybe just because his name began with A, and he survived and lived to the ripe old age of 98. On such small things does fate turn sometimes in life. It's day two of my trip up the old railway line with Andrew. We continue to visit old cuttings and embankments and each one adds to the sense of the enormity of this endeavour. So Andrew and I are exploring an old cutting. This cutting would have been made by Asian labourers 80 years ago. It's completely overgrown now with bamboo and other plants and trees as you can hear Andrew hacking away in front of me um, to see what we can see and see what we can find. Australia's always happy when they've got a machete in their hands. This is a, uh, they call a porous embankment. The water comes down there, it soaks through here, comes out over there. So it's not, they don't have to build a bridge. Mm. They just build it that what allows the um, water to seep through. We can see a clear cutting ahead of us as well. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Also, the the soil here would have been a lot easier to have yeah. cut down the some of the rocks that we've seen yeah. in places like Elfar Pass. Yeah. And hint it's still not easy, but... Uh, no, I still wouldn't want to do it, but... Yeah. Very good. It's just... extraordinary to... think about how hard they work to create this thing, and then we're yeah. coming back and... in it, as you say, unless you were really looking for... knew what you were looking for, you'd never know this thing yeah. was here or existed. It's not, it's not anywhere where you think the railway should be. Absolutely not. I mean, 
Well, I've really noticed that as the day's gone on, we've got more remote, more, more rural. So yeah, it's not where you'd expect a train station or train line to be. The more remote your location, the tougher life generally was. Further from towns and markets with fresh supplies of meat, food and eggs, difficult to access at the best of times, these camps were totally inaccessible during the rainy season except by river, and even then, when the river flooded, access was tricky. And the rainy season could turn the camps into a quagmire. Here's Chandra Sekaran of the Death Railway Interest Group describing to me the conditions some of the Asian labourers had to endure. What were these camps like? Just so that people understand what the okay. camp would be some like. Some of them were actually not even camps. Mm. They said when they got there, there was nothing. Right. There was nothing. They had to build everything themselves. So that means for the first few days, they will be drenched in the rain and then everything. And then they said when you do put up a patch, you know, it is maybe to, to keep you from, from getting... Uh, direct sunlight or anything like that, or even at night. But it doesn't really keep the rain out. Even with the attic roof, it does leak. It does leak. And sometimes the, the floor, there's, you know, it's a muddy floor. There's nothing on the, the, the ground is just mud. You have an elevated uh, bamboo uh, platform where you sleep. Sometimes it rains and then, you know, there's no proper sanitation because uh, no proper toilet. You just go around somewhere and uh, they do their business. And when it rains and, and, and the area floods, so the, the feces may come floating back to your camp. Mm. It's not hard to imagine how easily disease spread in these camps, especially camps without medical staff and supplies. Whilst the POWs had camps with established military structures, with officers, leaders, cooks, carpenters and medical staff, the Asian labourers had none. Sometimes they were thrown together with people with whom they didn't even share a common language. It's impossible for Andrew and me to explore the next section of the railway. In the 1980s, the Thais, in partnership with an Australian engineering company, built the Vajiralongkorn Dam. The dam, which is 90 metres high and 1,000 metres long, generates power for the local hydroelectric power station. The reservoir below has the capacity to hold 8,000 million cubic metres of water. And beneath the surface of this vast reservoir are several villages and 60 kilometres of the Thai-Burma Railway. One of the underwater railway stations is called Koita, 200 kilometres and 25 stations west of Kanchanaburi. And it's here that the Thai side and the Burma side of the railway met in October 1943. Ian Dennis Peake, whom we last met struggling to eat rice, writes in his memoirs, We have been given official news that the railway has been completed and that trains are now running in both directions. The final connection was made at a ceremony attended by the high-ranking Japanese officers and civilians on the 17th of October at Tarkanan Camp. Unofficially, we have also heard that a selected group of our fittest-looking men, dressed in new clothing and boots, was photographed in front of a stack of rice and tinned food. Immediately afterwards, Everything was taken back and was not seen again. This bit of cheap cover-up does seem to indicate that the Japanese command, somewhere in the depth of their minds, do acknowledge that their actual treatment of us must be concealed from the rest of the world. So a railway 415 kilometres long was built in just 12 months by a malnourished and disease-ridden workforce using simple manual tools. But the cost in lives was staggering. The oft-quoted statistic is that for each sleeper on the railway, a life was lost. 
Next time you're on a long train journey, look down at the sleepers on the track and think about that. And that's a conservative estimate. It could be more. As always with figures on the railway, we can be very sure of the POWs and only speculate for the Asian labourers. 12,619 POWs lost their lives, including 6,904 British, 2,802 Australians, 2,782 Dutch and 131 Americans. That, as Rod said earlier, is a fatality rate of roughly 20% for the British, Australians and Americans and 16% for the Dutch. The Speedo period was by far the most deadly period on the railway. I would estimate 60% of the deaths that happened in just over two years in Thailand and Burma happened in the five months between June and October 1943, the Speedo period. It was also the rainy season when camps were isolated and roads impassable. But what this figure suggests is that these men were essentially worked to death. Fatality rates for Asian labourers are estimated at around 50%. So depending on which source is the most reliable, whether you estimate 70,000 worked on the railway, 200,000, 300,000 or half a million, you will get an idea of how many of them died. Many of them were simply dumped in mass graves, lost for now in the jungles of Thailand and Burma. And the loss of life among the Japanese and Korean guards on the railway was also significant. Of the 15,000 who worked on the death railway, 1,000 died, a fatality rate of 6.6%. The question has to be asked, how could the Japanese allow this to happen? So many people, prisoners, labourers, even their own guards, dying to complete this railway. Here's Sarah Kovner of Columbia University and author of Prisoners of Empire, POWs and their captors in the Pacific, discussing this with me. So people who are coming to this subject, you know, who know a little bit about this subject, they'll, they'll always think about uh, the, the brutality of the Japanese in the way that they treat the prisoners of war. So a lot of them will want to know, why is that? Why do the Japanese... And treat the prisoners of war in the way that they do. Okay, so I, I, I would say there's. I've written a whole book about this, but I think that there's nothing, and I want to really stress there's nothing inherent to Japanese character or culture that leads to the inhumane treatment of POWs. Um, and we see this because Japanese the Japanese state treatment of POWs changes over the 20th century. Um, so it can't be that there's something inherent to Japanese people. And that's actually one of the things that got me interested in doing this research. Um, additionally, I mean, and, and so, and I think that one of the things that explains the poor treatment that was given and the abusive and um, hard conditions that POWs faced is what we've talked about already, that senior officials didn't really give much thought to the management of these camps. And they didn't pay any attention to the challenge of managing POWs, and they weren't interested in caring for them. And this leads to cruel and inhumane situations. And the situations are cruel and inhumane. There's kind of, I, I don't, nobody could deny that. I mean, people probably do, mm. but I certainly wouldn't. Um, but the question of why it is that these situations became that way is interesting to me. And I think that what stands out in the Japanese case is a kind of unwitting cruelty there's no protocol, no manual, and, and nobody's in charge. Now, of course, like in the Japanese case, as in many cases around the world of where we see POWs, right, there are going to be people who um, are abhorrent people, and um, we, we see this in the Japanese case as well. But I, I don't think that that is something that is like particularly Japanese. I mean, there are evil, evil people everywhere, unfortunately. I also spoke via an interpreter with Aiko Utsumi, a Japanese academic formerly at Keisen University, Tokyo, who studied the Japanese treatment of POWs for many years. She speaks of a policy of indifference and irresponsibility. Unlike the Holocaust, she writes in the Asia-Pacific Journal, there is nothing premeditated in the treatment of POWs and Asian labourers. Rather, it's a combination of gross mismanagement, the low calibre of the men responsible for managing prisoners and labourers, a lack of food and medical supplies, 
the immense pressure to complete projects for the war effort, and the sheer scale of prisoners and civilians that needed to be controlled. As we heard in the first episode, Brian Farrell of the University of Singapore acknowledges the sheer scale and logistical challenge of managing so many prisoners. However, he also highlighted the harsh military code in Japan at the time. Because it's based on a cultural understanding that was so fundamentally alien from that of the West that to surrender was a a completely unacceptable act which deprived you of any status as a human being worth taking seriously, let alone as a soldier with rights guaranteed by any conventions. Much could be left up to the discretion of the individual Japanese commanders because the system really had no psychological or operational way to cope with this. So too much was left up to that. Give you a, a counterpoint example. A notorious case of a Japanese pilot who'd been shot down in the early days of the, the campaign in Burma and he'd been found unconscious and taken prisoner through no fault of his own. He was unconscious, he was wounded. But of course he survived. Allies gave him medical treatment and the Japanese forces moved fast enough that they liberated him. But because he'd fallen into their hands and technically surrendered, they court-martialed him. And they ordered him to commit suicide. Mm. Even though, of course, there's no possible way he could have avoided surrendering. So when you have an institution with an attitude like that, backstopped by a societal attitude which is as strong as it is, really a cult of death, It's not really shocking or surprising that they wind up treating on a relatively large scale, if not systematically, the prisoners of war who fall into their hands with something bordering on contempt and often going beyond that. And again, I'm not in any way excusing this. It's absolute savagery, but it's not inexplicable. That's the point to make here. Interviewed for television years after the war, one guard gives a fascinating insight into the Japanese military mindset during the construction of the railway. We had no machinery, so we had to forget the individual. Our job was to finish the work by the imposed deadline. The individual could not be taken into consideration. All that mattered was the end result. The workforce was not regarded as being made of human beings. It was simply a machine a way of getting the work done on time. The Japanese and Korean guards, the Asian labourers, called Romusha by the Japanese, the prisoners of war and even the elephants, were all part of this relentless machine building a railway in a timeline considered inconceivable before the war. And it was completed on time. The individual could not be taken into consideration. When the railway was complete, many of the POWs, especially the sick, returned to the big permanent camps and hospitals around Kanchanaburi and Nompladuk. Colonel Tusi's camp at Tamakan, near Kanchanaburi, became a hospital camp once the bridges were complete. And broken and exhausted men returned there when they could work no more. Emaciated, exhausted, they arrived with nothing. Here's Rod Beatty and Julie Summers, Colonel Tuzi's biographer and granddaughter, discussing how he would greet the men who arrived in this state. Colonel Tuzi, when Tamakan became this huge hospital camp in about May 1943, they started shipping wreckage down from the railway, human wreckage. He would meet every train that came down there with some of his staff, fresh containers of hot tea for these men, regardless, morning, evening, night time, didn't matter when the train came in, with tea made these men welcome. And a rice cake. He always made sure they had something, if it was only a tiny rice cake to eat. And there are some lovely accounts, I'm sure you found one or two of them, of people coming in and sitting down on their packs, you know, filthy, covered in streaks of goodness knows what and worse than your imagination can can conjure and they'd all sit down in their packs and he'd say right you're safe now they felt as though we've got someone here who cares about us and we've been safe we have survived the jungle we're now back in friendly hands someone cares for us huge lifting your morale your spirits and your chances of survival 
because someone cared. And they would sit there and going, we believed him. And yet, in what sense were we safe? Well, the answer was we were safe because we'd arrived at a camp where there was water, they could wash us, they could clean us, they could, you know, file us off into places to sleep, they could give us food if it, if it was only very meagre. But he really wanted them to believe that when they'd come into that space, they were going to be as safe as it was possible to be in the conditions. Part of that belief would have also been the way he looked, because apparently he always turned out incredibly smartly. And so they were turning up in literally in rags or maybe just even wearing a loincloth. They'd lost their boots a long time ago. And, and here was this impeccably turned out uh, officer who said, you're safe now. And I think a part of that belief would have been seeing this man in front of him. He thought, I, I believe this guy, yeah. A cup of tea, a rice cake and a consoling word. Tuzi could give the men these things, but as much as he tried to protect them, he could not always succeed. One of the most tragic things that uh, is in your book, of course, is POWs who have survived building the bridge, have survived building the railway, uh, add, I suppose it's a phrase in, in modern times, we call it friendly fire. They, they, they're killed by the RAF bombardments of the railway line and the bridge and and Tuzi describes it very well and just how heartbreaking it is to see men killed in this way. Yeah it was terrible so he he was moved from Tamakan to a camp called Nonpladuk which was right at the beginning of the railway and that's where the Japanese had huge railway siding it's where they uh, put a lot of their troops and munitions uh, onto trains so it was a very important target for the RAF and my grandfather had done battle with the very unpleasant uh, camp commander at um, Nongpladuk and asked him again and again and again to allow him to dig slit trenches for the men so that when those sightings were bombed, and it wasn't a question, it was if, they knew damn well they would be bombed, when those sightings were bombed the men could get into slit trenches and they didn't allow it. So on the 3rd of September 1944 there was a colossal raid and a, a, a very large number of men, I, you'll have to get the figures from the book, it's, it was it was scores of men were killed and it was mainly because they didn't have slit trenches so they they ran into the huts and hut three was struck by a bomb and all the people inside it were were killed and my grandfather um took the funeral for that um ghastly episode and said it was just horrendous it was pouring with rain and the bodies were slipping off the stretchers i mean it was a really it was a really really dire time for them all emotionally and physically uh, but after that he managed to persuade Colonel Ishii the camp commander to allow him to dig trenches so when there was another raid a number of men got killed but nothing like the number that did in that first raid in September. Life after the railway was completed changed. For many it was better. Here's John Coast and we've met earlier working with elephants talking about his easy life a few months after the railway was complete. The weather in Thailand, especially up-country, in the months of January and February is almost perfect. Each morning for one hour after breakfast, it was really fresh, and the mist rose off the river and cleared away at about ten o'clock as the sun got warmer. Then we'd go down to the hospital beach, a secluded bay of rocks and sands, and there we'd play chess or read under a gentle sun until midday, by which time the sweat was beginning to run as the sun got higher, and into the river we went, lying in the shallows, or idly swimming around the pool. Idle days. For the lucky ones, there were cultural events and sports, much like they had in Changi. Carrie Outram, running the hospital camp in Chunkai, Kanchanaburi, believed such events were vital for morale. He was an enthusiastic producer of theatrical events and would often sing in concerts as well. John Coast's experience as a theatrical impresario in the camps persuaded him to swap his pre-war city life for a post-war career in the music industry. But for some unfortunate men, life, unbelievably, was about to get even worse. To find out more, I head back to the Thai Burma Railway Centre to look through their records with Andrew. Andrew, I have a friend who's asked us if we can look up his great uncle and what he did in the war. So the name that I've got for you is, is Cyril Packham. 
So maybe you could uh, have a look at your records and show what you've got and what we know about what happened to him. Okay, Nick. Um, I've looked up our records and we have him registered as Cyril Gordon Packham, Royal Army Ordnance Corps, attached to the 6th Heavy Anti-Aircraft Regiment Royal Artillery. His record shows his service number is 7604029 and it also shows his movements from Singapore. So he's captured Singapore on the 15th of February and he leaves Singapore on the 22nd of June 1942. So you've got the exact... You can... You can Tell us the exact day that he went from Singapore to... We can, yep. and that's So we have, we have three different uh, sources of that information. Three different sources placing him on a specific train on a specific day 80 years ago. This really reinforces the point about how organised the military units were. Everyone is accounted for all along the way. We also look at which camps he worked in, what hospitals he was in, what diseases he had... The records are impressively detailed. Good. So a couple of things to us. One of the things is once the railway is built, and this is a good example of that, a lot of the soldiers were then made to work on something else. And in this case, we've got him working in 1945 on an airfield in a different part of Thailand, correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Now, what we can also see from our further records, we have hospital records. We don't have a complete range of hospital records, but we do have some. And we see from his medical reports after working on an aerodrome, he's suffering from malaria, dysentery and tropical ulcers. It it looks like he's not all that well after after working down at the uh, building, the aerodrome at um, Petchbury. He's been evacuated back up to Nakompatom Mm. right before the end of the war. He's admitted on the 10th of August 45 and the war ends on the 15th of August. So it's only just... A week, less than a week before the end of the war. So then he's going to get reasonably good um, medical care from there. It sounds as though the war couldn't have ended sooner for Cyril Packham. Andrew then asked me if I knew anybody on the railway. I couldn't think of anybody. And then I did remember somebody. It was a long shot, but when I was a young boy, my father told me that our local butcher worked on the bridge on the River Kwai. And I remember his name, Mr Coleman, an apt name I always thought for an East Anglian butcher. Coleman, like the mustard. We looked him up and couldn't find him under Coleman. And then, with a little more searching, we found him. Coleman, with an E. Stanley William, Private, Suffolk Regiment. Occupation, Butcher, in Fordham, Essex. Like Cyril Packham, we can see his day of capture, the 15th of February 1942, and the day he leaves Singapore by train to Thailand, the 31st of October 1942. I see the names of his camps, including Wong Po Viaduct, when he fell ill and the operation he had. But what is perhaps most interesting is what happened to him after the railway was finished. When the railway was complete, many considered still fit enough to work were sent to other projects. As we've just heard, Cyril Packham went to work on an aerodrome in another part of Thailand. Stanley Coleman returned to Singapore by train. From there, on the 4th of July 1944, he set sail to work in Japan on board the Hofokumaru ship. Two weeks later, the ship, in poor condition, limped into Manila. The ship required urgent repairs and for two whole months Coleman and his comrades were forced to stay in the hold of the ship whilst the repair work was carried out around them. Eventually, on the 20th of September, the ship set sail for Japan in a convoy. On the next day, the convoy was attacked by 200 American airplanes. The Hofokumaru was hit and sunk. Those that had the strength swam to shore but few of them did. Of the 1,200 POWs aboard, only 221 survived. Coleman was one of those survivors. Recaptured, he spent the rest of the war in a camp in the Philippines. A prisoner in that camp remembers the night those men arrived. 
all of them practically naked and suffering from beriberi and dysentery. After the war, Coleman returned to Fordham, Essex to resume his life as a family butcher. And I'm shocked to learn that more POWs died on these ships during the war than they did on the Thai Burma Railway. 20,000 men were drowned in these ships, earning them the grim name Hell Ships, ships sunk by Allied planes and submarines. Amongst the dead was Jackie Weston, Reg Twig's tobacco sharing pal. He'd survived the horrors of Hellfire Pass, only to be drowned at sea in the hold of a Hell Ship with 400 fellow prisoners. The records at the Thai Burma Railway Centre are impressively detailed and thorough. And whilst in the archives office, Rod helps me understand the discrepancy between the records of the POWs and the Asian labourers. I know that we spoke earlier about the Asian workers and of course, sort of tragedy for them is that they, they don't have these type of records. We think the Japanese probably destroyed them at the end of the war. Is that correct? But there's a completely different focus. With yeah. the military, yeah. you have to, you're obliged to record all that. True. The Red Cross gets involved. There's a lot of people involved in all of this. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, the periods all have to be recorded mm-hmm. in some way or another. The Asian laborers, not, not so. Yes. Now, the Japanese did, they would have, because they need to know how many they had and what they were feeding, et etc. Et yes, but we know, and the rec- records are quite strong about this, that when the Japanese surrendered 15th of August 1945, here in Kanchanab, but all over, it was several weeks before the Allied forces could come in here. General MacArthur decreed no Allies will go into the captured territories until I have signed the Japanese surrender, which happened on the 2nd September, mm. weeks later. So the Japanese had these couple weeks where they could burn, destroy whatever they wanted. And the POWs here in Kanchanabri, they report of seeing the fires, the burning, the burning, the burning. Loads of records destroyed. Loads of records. Now, Asian labourers, there are, we have no, none, we have none. Mm. We have them of the POWs, because the POWs themselves recorded them. Yeah. Right? POW structure, it, it works in a POW. You've got a commanding officer. Yes. POW, colonel, major, whatever rank, doesn't matter. And then under him, he will have a hygiene officer, a messing officer, a quartermaster, the various subsections within the camp structure. Mm. And then his duty will be that and that and that and that. Whereas the Asian labourers, it's a, it's a camp of 3,000 individuals. Yes. Yeah, the Japanese might record it. But they're just recording numbers, perhaps, rather than anything else. Personnel and whatever. Yeah. That's right. And the same in the supply and the welfare of the men. If a POW falls sick, there's a medical officer. Someone's going to look after him while he's sick. If you're a sick Asian, who's going to care for you? My travels along the old track route have come to an end, and it leaves me in a reflective mood. So I haven't reached the end of the railway line, but I have reached the end of my journey. So I've travelled 2,000 kilometres from Singapore to where I am now, which is the Three Pagodas Pass. Most of that has been by train, some of it by car. And the reason I've stopped here at Three Pagoda Pass is I'm on the Thai-Burma border now, and I'm not going to go into Burma or... Myanmar as it is now called. So I'm going to end my journey on the railway here, even though the railway did go for a further 100 kilometres into Burma. Three Pagodos Pass is an interesting place. It is a very historical place. It's the crossing historically where armies would cross over, particularly Burmese armies when they were invading Siam. But famously... The Thai army stopped them once and there was a battle here 
and they stopped the invading Burmese forces in their tracks. So therefore, it's a very significant place for Thai people. And so when the borders were drawn, the Thais insisted that three pagodas would be on their side of the border. So if you look at a map, you'll see it sticks out, a salient point in the map, almost like a finger. So I'm surrounded by Burma on three sides. And here in the middle is three pagodas pass. And this is also, of course, where the railway, the Thai side of the railway and the Burma side of the railway met. So I've completed my 2000 kilometer journey and now I'm going to inspect some of the railway and go back home. So final thoughts of the three pagodas. There's a border peace temple here. And of course, well, nice to see that for me is what I see when I'm at Three Pagodas is, is a reminder of conflict, the conflict over the centuries between Burma and Thailand, and the battle that they had here, the Burma-Thailand Railway and the memories of that here as well. And, and even now, as I stand here, there's reminders of conflict in the modern day. We had to go through three military checkpoints to get here. And uh, Andrew showed me some footage of some fighting literally hundreds of meters away from where I'm standing right now. And this week, we've seen in the papers about a terrible airstrike that killed over a hundred Burmese civilians in Myanmar. The, the military killing a hundred of their own people with an airstrike. So, sadly, conflict goes on. And we remember it, we put up memorials, and yet the conflict goes on. Next time, in the final episode, I'll explore the legacy of the railway. What happened to the people on both sides who worked on the railway after it was completed? I'll attend a memorial service for Asian labourers and meet one of the very last survivors of those horrific events 80 years ago. If you're finding this interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the locations I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway, so if you'd like to know more, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website as well. I do hope you find them interesting.